Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This is the Entree Architect Podcast, episode 86. Welcome back to the Entree Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, whether you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. Imagine taking your client for a tour of their new building, entering the front door, walking through the lobby full of natural light, and you look up into the the tall vaulted ceilings. You point to a detail high above where the sunlight enters the space and reflects off the wall, exploding in a rainbow of colors. Imagine taking this tour with your client before the foundation is even poured or the walls are constructed. Imagine experiencing this light-filled lobby before the building even exists. Virtual reality is a tool that may allow architects to design new spaces never before experienced. It will, it will allow us to experiment and find the faults before they become reality. Virtual reality is here and it will soon transform our entire profession. This week on the Entree Architect podcast, I speak with George Valdez of Iris VR, and we talk about many things in addition to sharing his thoughts on virtual reality 
in architecture. This episode of the Entree Architect podcast is sponsored by the Entree Architect Report. That's my free weekly newsletter. Subscribe at entrearchitect.com newsletter. George Valdez, welcome to the Entrepreneur Architect podcast. Thank you. Thank you to be here. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. I, I think uh, what you're doing is pretty exciting stuff, and I wanted to uh, get you on here and talk about it a little bit. You're trained as an architect. You're an award-winning designer and an entrepreneur. Uh, so what better place, where <laughs> where better to be than the Entrepreneur Architect podcast? Um, you're currently based in New York City, originally from Miami. Uh, you're in New York City now as vice president of product at Iris VR, a relatively new position for you. So that's really exciting. Uh, VR, for anybody who doesn't know, virtual reality. So we're going to get into some pretty cool stuff here. It's uh, Iris VR is a company dedicated to bringing the efficiencies and new opportunities afforded by virtual reality to the AEC industries. He also co-founded Built In, the architecture and entrepreneurship meeting. It's the largest meetup in New York City devoted to fostering entrepreneurship within the AEC industries. And so, again, right on target here. We're, we're, we're aligned, yeah. running parallel paths here. Um, but before we get into any of that cool stuff, I want to get your origin story. I want you to go way back and talk about when you discovered architecture, what sort of inspired you to, to uh, enter the profession, and uh, give us your journey from that point to where you find yourself today. Uh, yeah, so I guess I'll start... Uh, it really kind of started actually in the car of my uncle, my uncle's car. Actually, um, we were talking about what to do. It was, it was in high school, and we were talking about what what um, kind of possibilities were out there. I knew I wanted to I wanted to do film initially. Um, ever since I was a kid, I think for for many of my generation, Jurassic Park was a pivotal movie uh, in many respects, and I think it really um, instilled in me a, a desire to explore how. Um, you know, cinema could could impact, um, I guess, viewers and just like that was a really emotional effect. And um, I did. I took some classes in high school that had to do with Rhino. So I, I learned, you know, some software with the three D modeling back back then. But when when I was in um, the car with my uncle, uh, just talking about what to do next, he mentioned architecture, um, and he brought it up as he knew some architects um, that um, you know could. He, from his understanding, they leveraged um, both science and math kind of together, and, and creativity as well. Um, so it's kind of artistic, and 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 it might appeal to me. And so um, I actually just kind of took him on that. Um, it's actually, I guess, at that point, I really didn't. I had so many diverse interests. I just had. I, I couldn't see myself going into business or into anything else, but it seemed like architecture was like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe that's something I could try to do. Um, and so I attended FIU, um, Florida International University in Miami. Um, and it was really an amazing experience. Uh, the, the kind of, just after even the first assignment, I just, felt, I just felt immediately like this was it for me. I remember clearly the first assignment was to look at a painting by uh, different paintings, but uh, each student was assigned one, and I was assigned Marcel du Marcel Duchamp's uh, *New Descending a Staircase*. And the whole notion, the whole premise, was to look at that painting and try to come up with a spatial analogy for it, or to kind of 
first analyze it as a painting and, uh, you know, using different, uh, I guess, ways of understanding art, um, you know, uh, foreground, background, um, solid void, and then extract that into try to make it into some sort of space. Um, and I just knew it was for me. It, 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 it clicked in, in a way that I had never thought of before. Um, during my experience, though, I did very well, I guess, in studio. Um, but um, I didn't. I actually uh, there's a there's a thing in the FIU at the time when the, it was during the bachelors. They don't have that anymore. But um, where you had to reapply to get into the third year uh, because it's a state school, so they need to let other community colleges come in. And um, I didn't get into the architecture program, and it was a huge shock for me. Although looking back on it, my portfolio was horrible and I didn't spend any amount of time on it as much as I should have. But it was a huge shock because um, I had done very well in studio. Um, so I, it was almost like an expectation. But um, I took that as I was really kind of a it was a very tough time. But I remember uh, being advised by some of the other faculty who were in the landscape architecture program that had just recently opened up for the bachelor's program. They were encouraging me that I should try that try that instead and the reasoning was sound I mean it was like well you know why waste a year um, trying to reapply again to the program when you can just kind of do this route it's not that different and the way uh, I was really sold when uh, it was explained to me that think of plantings think of um, vegetation as bricks or concrete or just another material that you play with in designing spaces um, and it made sense. And the faculty, it's a very small program at FIU, but it was, I mean, much of the faculty is still there today, and I consider them to be, I mean, incredible mentors, and it was just the most amazing experience um, to go through. Um, professors like Roberto Rivera and Gianna Faoli were just like, I mean, they, they, they really made you think differently. And I think it was during that time seeing them work and how they operated that I started to get more inspired about what was possible. Um, Roberto, especially, his career is very interesting and kind of really, uh, as an artist slash practitioner, he was very inspirational for me and in, in, uh, uh, another colleague of mine named Adrian, who we, we actually founded the built-in meetup together, um, in that he basically had a practice in which he was able to do what he really wanted to do, but still had ownership. And he was an entrepreneur. He is an entrepreneur in his own way, um, and that just became incredibly inspirational. I mean, to the point where Adrian and I ended up opening up our own design studio to do like landscape designs for for people back in undergrad. Uh, we hadn't even like I think we were in our third year together, and um, or third year down there, and it just it made total sense. Um, so and, you started you started your own business while yeah. you were still in school. Yeah, we were just the, the mentality was like. You know why well one was like why wait the other was like we'll learn more by doing it than by not doing it yeah and you know I remember we had a, a, a client it was just doing the first client presentation the first client meeting and the nervousness of going to meet with the client and first of all figure out like how to propose this and then you know charging the money like asking for the for the price right uh, became Oh man, it was it was just very surreal. I remember we got so excited when they said yes, and we were like in the car, like "Oh my God, yes!" Like we got like they we're doing this, we're actually doing it. Um, and that was that was a great experience. I mean, what's interesting is that uh, 
the uh, Adrian, who I met at, at FIU, him and myself had just worked consistently together throughout since since then. I mean, we we went to work for another uh, architect named Andrush um, Sherbata. He is um, currently in Thailand, but at the time he had an operation called Pi Studio in Miami, and we learned a ton from him. I mean, we were able to work on an installation for the Miami Science Museum, a uh, permanent one in their in their current, not the new building by Grimshaw. Um, but I've just been fortunate to be surrounded by people and have the opportunity to work with people that were just entrepreneurs and see their challenges. And by seeing the mistakes that were they either made or um, that we made t together collectively, it was very formative. Um, by the time I went to grad school at Columbia to do architecture or to study architecture proper, um, I had already been exposed to so much about the issues of practice, whether it's um, yeah, how, how to talk in client presentations, how to take objections from clients, how to um, you know how to scope out the work that you're going to do and make sure that there's no scope creep, right? And, and be able to um, yeah, just deal with a myriad of issues. Uh, and, and Columbia was, I mean, this was in 2009. Um, going there was another, another kind of like life-altering moment because Columbia has a great way of, because the way that they structure their courses, you basically get to take any, prof uh, you pick your own professors and they're spread across a variety of interests. And it was interesting because during my trajectory at that time, I, re I while I wanted to be an architect so badly when I went in, I mean, I all the projects I did in undergrad were still architectural. The the outcome was very different. I basically realized that what I really loved was technology and how it could impact space. And you discovered that in Columbia. Yeah, I mean at Columbia. Yeah, because the you had a, a mixture of professors, some who are very much about practice and building. Um, you know, you have Stephen Hall, and you have other you know um, uh, architects that are really about the craft of architecture. Um, and then you have other professors that are just exploring the fringe. And every time that the lottery happened, the, uh, the school did the lottery for the professors, I just always picked the people that were on the fringe. I couldn't put them lower than number one um, or number two. I, it just, it, it's almost like a, Columbia has a way of just teasing out yourself um, because of the options that they have. When you say the fringe, talk, what, is, what does that mean? So the fringe is like, um, good example is David Benjamin, um, who um, he has a firm called The Living which just got a, got acquired about two years ago by Autodesk. Uh, as a as a practitioner, he, he's always exploring um, how other, let's say, advances in other fields will impact the industry. So, for instance, he did he's done work with synthetic biology. Uh, the course I took with him was really exploring how synthetic biology could impact the supply chain of the industry, whether it's by being able to program small bacteria to create um, new material or whether it could mine material from existing rummage or you know, existing trash. Um, so that, and, and along those lines, he's always looking at optimization. So looking at um, 
um, the field of big, uh, you know, what we call big data and the kind of practices that happen in, with data analysis and how that could impact, again, um, the way we think about buildings. Um, he's one, I think, uh, Mark, Mark uh, Collins and Toru Hasegawa, who um, they just announced recently their Morfolio application. Um, they, they, they have a company called Morfolio, which is a suite of applications for, for designers. Um, they were teaching how to do, how to build um, iPhone apps. Um, they were teaching how to code and how do you think about um, programming as an extension of your toolkit um, and as a way of thinking actually also about how how um, you know whether it's thinking about code in a modular way and being able to um, use that to either come up with new um, types of designs or just new interactions or, or you know anything it, and, and they're not even pr thinking about form you know a lot of a lot of when people think about Columbia, they associate the kind of radical geometry that might have come out uh, uh, of it in the earlier, earlier in the two thousands or things like that. But it, it, I think we're way in be, uh, Toro and Mark really stress that we're beyond that. Um, so things like that, just like very much on not about the physical building, but more about the systems and. Yeah. The technologies that can impact the building, right? And there's so much more to architecture than the buildings, and yeah. the, and the fact that there's full studios that are that are teaching those things uh, should certainly send a message to the profession as well that that that's that's okay that we should be pushing beyond our boundaries as architects and going as far as we can go right to the to the edge to the fringe and make sure that we're you know that that if that's where your life is pulling you don't resist that go there. And go explore that. So, so continue on from from where you are in, in Columbia. So, uh, graduating, I got the opportunity to. Um, I got hired by the school to run um, the accreditation process, um, which was a, a kind of a year long opportunity that both taught me a lot about managing teams, um, going from very small to very large in a very short amount of time. Uh, and, and David Benjamin was um, basically the, uh, I reported to him, and he was a great mentor throughout the process about, you know, always focusing on delegation, constantly having to delegate the work so that, because there's so much, you just can't do it all on your own, and you have to always be constantly thinking about who can I give this work to, um, and who can be the best person for this job, ultimately. Um, and that, you know, that was a, a phenomenal experience. During that time, though, I definitely took it as a moment of um, internal, let's say, soul-searching, mm -hmm. um, where I didn't jump into the field immediately after graduating. I saw this as a great opportunity to just think about what I wanted to do next. And during that time, Adrian is also, he went to Pratt during the same time that I was. So we were both in New York and we were just kind of strategizing about what are we going to do? And we came up with this idea. Uh, we we're very interested in what Airbnb was doing. Um, we saw that the way that they were thinking about space was very radically different, uh, even though it was, it seemed like it's such a old idea, the idea of being able to stay in other people's homes and things like that, but the way they were able to structure it and monetize it was phenomenal. I mean, it got us thinking that we could do, we could build something on top of that. Um, so we had this idea called Feather and Mint, and it was based... It's, it's Feather and Mint? Yeah, Feather yep. and Mint. Okay. Um, where 
we we were the big dream was to turn each of these homes into a space of commerce so um if you're staying on an average of five days in an airbnb that means that you have five days opportunity potentially of being able to sell something in that space so it maybe um you might have pieces of furniture that you want to sell so you could sell them through to your host as well and then We'd handle the whole logistics side of that. Yeah, what a great idea! Uh, just, just, be, just for anybody who doesn't know what Airbnb is, it's a marketplace for people who have homes or apartments that they can rent them out to people uh, through Airbnb. Uh, and so it's basically being able to rent your home that you live in while you're away. Somebody else can come in and and stay at your house while you're away. Right? That's essentially what it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know we were we had been reading a ton of books on entrepreneurship. Um, we read the Lean Startup, and you know there's a notion in the Lean Startup by Eric Ries that that um, talks about this uh, the MVP or the minimum viable product, and that's basically the idea that you build something very very simple that that can be the test for the bigger idea, because um, you know it's like. You don't want to spend all your resources and time and energy building something that ultimately people don't want. So if you build something small, you can build on top of it and build something um, that ultimately people will love. Um, but we we actually failed in that part um, because our our MVP was scaled so back that it actually lost the proposition, the initial proposition of selling um, products. So it was too minimum. It was two minimum. Uh, two minimum. That's, that's a good lesson to learn. Yeah, it it was. Um, we decided okay. The since we didn't have any money to be able to um, build out a complex system for logistics, and we also, I guess, in some ways, maybe felt scared about actually testing that out, which is another lesson. We built out um, just a very small little kit, and that kit had all the kind of um, things that you would need to give to your guest. So. As a host, you can give them shampoo, and it was all local, and like maybe a couple of treats, and that was all local. Maybe free music, and that was uh, locally sourced. And we would just kind of be a simple, uh, simple little add-on that you could buy from us um, at twenty dollars for the kit to give to your guests. Um, but in that exploration, we just we realized that that it wasn't as much of a problem. I mean, we because of the MVP was so far removed, we we're starting to address a very different problem. Um, you know, so we were at it for about, uh, nine months and, uh, we just, we, we decided that we couldn't, we couldn't do it anymore just out of financial purposes. At that time I started to look around, um, on AngelList, which is a great kind of resource for anybody looking to, um, you know, interested in getting into a startup. Um, they have a job board there and I came across a company called Augmate, um, Augmate um, at the time was based. It was two founders um, and uh, an intern, and and they were working out of a coffee shop. Um, so when I interviewed with them, the premise struck me really just perfect. Um, it was uh, at the time the pitch was that they were looking to connect wearable devices, um, which so is which is what like Google Glass. Um, you know, even smartwatches. But at the time, it was really just—it was just really on Google Glass. Um, and there's a other series of devices like it, like Vuzix. Uh, there's another company that makes these type of devices, and so does Epson, actually, which nobody, not many people know. So they're wearable computers, essentially. Exactly. 
and, and basically you can see information in, in your field of view either over your eye, above your eye, or just right in front of your eye. And I mean, it was just incredibly exciting. Um, and so the idea was to connect those devices to enterprise databases like SAP and uh, you know, Microsoft or Oracle um, for large organizations. I joined that company, you know, I pitched myself, and luckily the portfolio I had at GSAP was, was uh, sold it, sold the, I, I think I, we joke around about how I, I pitched it, I said that, oh, this is a spatial problem, so it makes total sense that I would be a part of this company, because ultimately you're going to design spatial interfaces for this, and I should be there. And uh, So let me just go back real quick. So, yeah. so the, you're going to take um, the, the large databases, like, from corporation enterprise databases, and and interface them with these wearables. Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. So just get that information into these devices in a simple way. Yeah. Okay. So it could be used by the users. Yeah, so it could be used. Um, and so we we, I basically spent we spent five months working on investment um, while we were working with um, other companies building out very um, simple applications for them. Um, we were able, I was able to be part of the fundraising process, so I learned what it meant to pitch to an investor. Um, and at the end of it, we were able to um, um, we were able to acquire 2.8 million from investors like UPS, um, Siemens, um, and uh, Rothenberg Ventures, um, and Simon Property Group. And you're you are an employee at that point of Augmate, or are you a, yeah. a partner? Yeah, so I was an employee. I was an a, early employee. I was the first hire. Okay, the, number one. Yep. And um, yeah, that was a phenomenal experience. Moving, uh, you know, fast forward, I, I was able to kind of I took on the role of designer, of UX designer, and really saw that I could leverage a lot of the things I had been learning from pre from way back. I mean, previous experiences, all the way back from you know undergrad. Um, during this whole time, by the way, just just to also add context. During the time between undergrad and um, grad school, I had worked at several firms either at the same time that I was going to school or during, um, you know, doing summer internships. But every everywhere from like Arquitectonica to um, Moss with um, Moss Architects here in, in New York, the Living as well. I, I got to spend some time working with, with David on that. That was actually going to be a question I had is when you because you said that in undergrad you started your own business. Yeah. Were you also interning at the same time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, it's almost like uh, I did not sleep much uh, for for many uh, years. Yeah. Um, so they're all much of a blur. A lot of my experiences are kind of blurry. Yeah. But um, I just had this drive to just try to do as much as possible. Um, so it was, it was not a replacement for your internship. That, I mean, you'd have to do internship eventually anyway, but... Right. You weren't doing that instead of internships. You were doing it in addition to internships. Oh, yeah. And yeah. you were getting that additional information and that experience with working with clients and having to deal with money and all of that. But you're still doing your internship. Because I think there was a lot of students and interns when you said that, their ears perked up and said, oh, I, that would be cool. I'd, I'd like to do that. Oh, but yeah. That's, that's sort of the, you know, the, uh, the uh, combining those two things. It's not, like you said, you're not going to sleep very much. It's, it's, it yeah. may be a good idea, but it's not going to be easy. Yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, at least in undergrad, there was a complete routine that Adrian and I had where we were working at Architectonica during the day. We then went to work with another um, professor who was doing a project for PS1 uh, named Eric Goldenberg. His, his company's Monad Architects. 
And then we would drive at night back to school. And this is all pretty far away in Miami. So driving back to school to do an all-nighter for an assignment we had to turn in on Wednesday morning. Uh, or it was, I think it was from Tuesday to Wednesday, the whole thing. So it was, it was, it was pretty insane, but we just didn't, it, it anything else didn't make any sense. Like yeah. a, for yeah. you, for you, it worked. Not yeah. necessarily something that we recommend to the rest of the world. Oh no. no I <laughs> but, mean, but for you, it, it worked and it put you where you are today. So yeah, because I just, you got to see so many different angles, um, what it meant to be a small office trying to do very experimental work to a very large office doing projects in Dubai or um, local projects as well. And you just got to see really the wide range of how people practice and and what are the trade-offs and kind of what are the um, differences and similarities. And all seeing that together at once, um, yeah, very, very formative. Yeah. Um, so you're at Yogmate and, and um, you're number one employee there, but you, you went back and you wanted to just confirm that we understood that you were working in all these larger firms while while you were while you were uh, in school. Yeah, because I just want to make sure that like people understood that there's a lot of different work experience. Yeah, yeah. Going throughout by the time that I got to Augmate, um, so I was able to leverage a lot of that in being able to put together um, helping out with contracts and things like that. Initially, um, we started also recruitment. I mean, that actually was probably the the newest, the kind of the new thing that I had never done before, which was how do you recruit talent um, and how do you find people that are going to fit with the culture um, that was a learning lesson um, it was I mean I spent I interviewed so many people during those five months before fundraising and then after that it was the whole year do you have any basic tips that you could provide for for hiring because that's a question that I get very often especially in the academy is is, is how do you make that first hire and then how do you find the right people for the right position? I'd say hire people that are better than you, um, always. Um, you know, if you're, I mean, there's a, I think there's a saying something about along the lines of, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, Yeah. kind of thing. Um, I think that kind of holds true, especially with recruitment. Hire people that are better than you and give them opportunities to excel. And the tools that they need to do yeah. what they can do. I mean, I think when it comes down to being an entrepreneur, one of the things that the biggest challenges is that you need to delegate yourself out of your own role in many ways, where your role is above and beyond just making sure that um, everyone is happy, everyone is um, works well with each other, that there's constant communication with each other, and that everyone believes and holds true to a mission that you that you've set um as the founder um so i think you know hiring people that are better than you and listening to what they you know their experience is is critical you know even if they're junior i would say that um you know for instance at, at the company that i'm currently at iris it's a pretty young team but i'm you know and i'm probably the most senior person on the team but at the same time there's so much hunger within the team and there's so much actually like they're all very, very bright. Everyone like uh, everyone here is I, I'm incredibly impressed by. And I think it's important to just let let people take that equation of like hunger, drive and ambition and just let them run with it. 
Yeah. Um, you know, too many times I, from from what I've seen and what I've heard is that when you have a small office, you think that you have to do everything, and it's problematic because um, if there's anything that you, you need to not be the designer anymore, you actually need to learn how to teach other people on, underneath you yeah. to think the way you do in terms of design. And that is one of the hardest things for architects to come to realize that as they grow and they build a team, that the thing that they love most, the reason they became an architect, really becomes a reduced role in your in your position. That in order to grow and in order to build strong, healthy businesses, you need to take on other roles that that and you need to replace yourself as a designer. That doesn't mean you can't design ever. It right. just means that the 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 design that needs to get done needs to be done by somebody else if if you're going to grow a team and build a uh, you know a company. Yeah, I mean, I, I give advice to some friends now that are opening up their own firms, and uh, typically what I tell them is that, you know, you need to, it depends on their personality type too, but um, typically if they're very good in front of people, I tell them that's all you need to do. Don't design. You need to get in more work coming in through the door. So you need to be out there finding work, uh, meeting people, um, hiring people underneath you, even, um, you know, uh, paid interns who come in and do the work, right? Because even with just one job that you get, it's not about, I mean, it's hard, but it's not about paying yourself at that point. Really, it's about building a machine, which yep. is what you're doing. You're trying to build this machine that will churn in new work continuously. So um, hiring people underneath you that will, that you can give them, you know, they're very bright, they're very smart, even if they've never built a set before, they can learn pretty quickly on how to do it and you can guide them. I think that's that's very critical because the more time you spend bringing in more leads in, the more you know, you'll be able to actually support this machine. So, um, and I have seen it where, you know, a small firm gets bogged down because the main the founder just can't do anything but design. And right. Um, it, it hurts. It actually hurts them personally, I think, and it hurts them over the long term of the business. And the question is always like, why aren't people calling me or why am I not getting more work? It's because there's a whole series of things you need to do more of um, than just design. Right. And that doesn't mean that you have to give up design forever. Because right. like you said, you want to build a machine. Once the machine is built and all the pieces are in place, then you get to choose where you land. That if that if you don't like you know meeting people face to face, once that machine is built, you can plug in somebody else who's doing that role, and then you can go back to become the lead designer. As long as all those other roles are are set, and there are people doing those things, and there's systems in place for those things to all happen, then you can pick what you want. And so it, it, it takes some time and effort, and you do need to sacrifice some of the things you love in order to get to where you want to go. But eventually, it all comes back around, and you have a system that works, and then you can go do what you really would love to do. Yeah. And you know, it, the experience that I made has been was phenomenal. I mean, was able to go from a designer to a director of design, uh, basically hiring other designers um, to take on. You know, again, I, I was delegating my role out um, to other people that I felt were better um, and more capable of. So, so you, were you building your systems and sort of creating a position that that eventually you you understood what you needed to do, you documented that, and you handed it to somebody who's coming in and would re essentially replace you. Yes, and then um, um, actually it's it, it sort of at the beginning of this year um, when it became clear that we had kind of started to nail down the what the actual product was going to be, um, 
I started to transition into business development uh, because it was a, a clear need that there needed to be someone trying to take um, the, com- the quote-unquote competitors that we had before in the space and turn them into partners because what we were building was leverageable by them. So um, that's what my role be- uh, became, uh, both looking for leads, uh, contacting them and kind of demoing them, you know, demoing and being able to um, actually take them down the funnel till we were able to execute contracts. Um, so I, g- I got to learn a lot about um, what it means to pitch an idea to um, as well. So it was, it was, yeah, it's been phenomenal. And Iris came around, the opportunity for Iris came around like about a, uh, maybe a month ago. And it's just something I couldn't pass up. It was basically like coming home after doing this, I mean, not a very long walkabout, but a pretty, now going from Feather and Mint to Augmate, and then kind of, you know, kind of really leaving architecture or um, behind, um, the opportunity to come back and take everything I've learned to this company um, is just um, a great, just incredibly happy about that. And it's amazing what happens when you follow those fringes that that you follow your heart and your passion, and you just roll with it, and you go, and you ultimately land where you belong. Yeah, and I, I I've only been here um, for a very short while, but um, it's just it's it's great because I know I worked enough to know where the problems are in communication in firms, um, and seeing what these guys have built thus far um, for architects is just incredibly exciting. Um, thinking about VR beyond just a presentation tool. You know, right now a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, you'll wear this like either the Samsung Gear VR, which is basically uh, you can use your phone to, to explore uh, models um, and just kind of like panning around in 3D versus being able to walk around, potentially tag different objects or do markups on the actual physical space and collaborate with other people in real time is amazing. So uh, you'll be able to build a digital model a, a 3D model of a space, and then then virtually enter that space. Right? Yes, that's what you're yes. saying. With virtual reality, it's going beyond you know taking an iPad or an iPhone and sort of looking into the model. Uh, you're actually developing software and systems that and hardware that uh, that'll actually physically well not physically will will put you into the space through okay. the through these tools. Yeah, and you'll be able to. I mean, right now. Um, Basically, you can take a Revit file that you have and drag it and drop it into the launcher um, for um, primarily for Windows. But you can drag and drop it, and it opens up, and you're in it. Um, it's so simple. Um, and we're, um, right now, it's you have SketchUp, Revit, uh, um, Rhino's going to be coming up pretty soon. Um, so it's it's going to be something that's going to be integrated completely into the architect's uh, workflow. And there's there's some there there there's a product now that's available. Yes. That they can, what what is that product? How how do people uh, find that? So you go, you could basically go to irisvr.com and um, there's a sign up uh, right there. There's a kind of little sign up form. Once you enter that, basically there's a couple of questions that are asked um, just to determine if you have the right system for um, our solution. Basically, uh, we we use Oculus Rift. We also have um, the Vive, which is a new uh, a new device by HTC, um, 
and we use those devices, but they're very intensive. And so you need to have a very heavy machine to be able to use them. Um, you need to have specs where you have graphics cards that are um, pretty powerful. Um, otherwise, you can get um, lag or glitch, and that actually, in in you know, in the setup for Oculus, it actually can cause nausea, just because um, you're it's so realistic. You're kind of the way you're looking at things that it can actually impact. Um, yeah. That sensibility. So, so, so when you're saying Oculus, that's actually sort of a mask that goes over your eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, you, yeah, so it's you don't see anything. You're totally immersed in into this virtual reality. You're completely in it. Yeah. Are, are there gloves as well? Or there, there. They. I or think is that being developed. We have, we have for the Vive. There's like these little joysticks that mm -hmm. you can carry and hold hold on to. The Vive is more complex because that one actually has a couple of um, tripods that you set up with a with these sensors so you can actually physically walk around so you're in a we have a room set up where you can walk around about 15 feet radius yeah. you can walk around and you're walking in the model wow uh and so, so these sensors see where you are and yeah. so it can it can adjust the model to, yeah to react it, to that and you can react to it and, and uh you know right now um yeah it's just amazing i mean even even at the at the beginning stages where this is at it's still pretty pretty powerful and I think when you think about how to develop maybe um, you know with Revit you have such an and BIM in general you have such an incredible opportunity to get feedback earlier on to a project than you did before um, that's what we're really interested in is how can we give you feedback from potentially a client uh, much earlier that's meaningful um, so as they explore the space they might be able to leave notes or comments on the space um, for you to be able to pick up afterwards um, or you're in the room with them right virtually um, and you can both kind of examine the space in a way that, that feels real to both parties as opposed to, you know, whenever you're just doing it on a laptop, the problem with that is that it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't have the same effect. I mean, I, I've seen the same space look, kind of walking through it with my computer, and I wear the Oculus Rift, and it's a completely different experience. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just incredibly, incredibly exciting. Yeah, it it you know when I was in high school and in college, I read books about virtual reality, and and at the time it was all fantasy. It, they were writing about it as if this was going to be the future, and we knew that it was coming, and they they had prototypes of things that that were possible. Um, but you know, twenty five years, twenty twenty five years later, it's here. It's and it's real, and it's happening, and they're you know commercial products that people can purchase and and do it. It's still very early, obviously. Yeah. You know, the potential for this technology is amazing. Uh, you know, another 20 years from now, it, it's, you know, you can't even imagine what's going to happen 20 years from now. But Yeah, I mean, 20 years from now, I mean, I think, you know, from my experiences at Augmate, you know, that, that whole camp when it comes to digital eyewear with Google Glass is a lot about AR, um, augmented reality, which means that you can get information overlaid on top of what you're looking at. And typically... That involves a lot of computer vision, which hardware right now can't really handle. But in 20 years' time, you can move away. You can have kind of, a, let's say, a series of different realities, one being virtual, one being actual, and the other one kind of being this, this augmented experience, um, where going on site as a, as a contractor, you might be able to see information overlaid on top of the actual physical environment. I don't think we're there yet, and I think over the span of the next 20 years, we probably will get there. Um, 
just because everything will, will uh, be so much more powerful. Um, right, so, so I can imagine a, a bidding process where everybody, you know, they do the, the, the tour of the project with the, you know, full immersion and they walk through with the architect and the owner and they, you know, talk about what needs to be done and they can show out, you know, the, the details and the potential conflicts and, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it just keeps going and going on what the potential is that you could, you can experience a structure at whatever level of detail that you want at any level of augmentation that you want um, without actually having the building built. Yes. I mean, and that's, that's powerful, uh, especially when you think about how much, I think uh, Phil Bernstein, um, who teaches at Yale, has done some work on this, um, some research on this about the amount of waste that is in the construction process in the building industry. It's incredibly wasteful. So much money is wasted. And I think uh, being able to either take on that as an opportunity um, is something that architects should think about. Um, you know, some of the things that we encourage through Built In, which is the meetup that Adrian and I started around the same time that we started Feather and Mint, to try to kind of expose some of the ideas we we're learning from this startup tech, tech world back into um, an architectural audience. Um, some of the things we talk about there are how there's so many things that if you look at your day-to-day, so many inefficiencies that if you thought about how to tackle those, you might have wider leverage as an architect than you might have designing buildings. Now, it takes people that ultimately have to come to terms with the fact that they can't design buildings to do this. Um, But I think there's enough people going into architecture where you might find some of those, let's say, people that are on the fringe. Um, I think think that those exploring how you can make your own workflows better, exploring how um, you can work with others better um, is kind of what built-in is about. Um, but we, we, we emphasize technology as, as a way to, as a means to that. Um, and, and using your education as an architect to go beyond, you know, the traditional design practice, that this is a whole group of people in New York city that meet on a regular basis and talk about the possibilities, the potential of what we can do as architects. And, you know, even sometimes we actually sometimes talk about just current scenarios. So for instance, we had a marketing event. Uh, where we brought in um, a representative from shop. We brought in, and it was a very mixed panel. We had some people from tech companies like Floored, Honest Buildings, um, Architizer, um, and then uh, we had some people from Practice. And the conversation was really about just marketing in architecture. And typically I'll set up the, the meetup with a presentation, just very quick, five slides, just setting like a like a narrative or a linear timeline for for what we're talking about. And it's shocking to me how marketing itself um, has been this kind of discouraged activity um, starting since like the 70s when it became almost like okay to start marketing. Right Before the practice saw marketing, I mean back when the early days of the profession, marketing was seen as this negative. Right. Why would, and then it became actually, uh, um, I think embodied legally that you couldn't do it or it was completely right. discouraged that you couldn't market your services. And that just completely took architecture off into a different course. That we're still feeling today, without a doubt. Incredible. And the fact, and what was amazing about that meetup in particular was that we had so many people coming from 
Gensler and from other firms, like other uh, marketing um, department people. And they came and they were just like, oh, wow, like, can, can you do more of these events? Um, we could in the future, but it just pointed, what that highlighted to me was that, wow, these people don't have a platform in which to converse about marketing for architecture. Yeah. Um, it hardly exists. Whereas if you go to the tech world, they have all sorts of conferences, like growth conference um, for growth hackers and how to grow your business really quickly with new features and um, or all sorts of different uh, kind of conferences specialized in different departments of your organization. And there's none of that for architecture. Yeah. Uh, I, I just came back from Denver uh, a couple of weeks ago from the AIA Entrepreneur Summit, mm. uh, that I, which I spoke at. But um, um, the comparison of architecture to the tech industry was was made several times and the contrast between what what they're doing and what we should be doing um you know from from talking about money and the way things are marketed and the way information is shared um it's it's a very very different world uh, and we can learn our profession could learn so much from watching these successful startups go from nothing to billion dollar companies. Yeah, and I think it's it's actually very prudent now um, more than ever to look at that because if you look at the industry in general and how it's moving, I've joked, we've joked, some of our friends have joked about this, about how at some point the architecture practice, this is a really bold statement and so we might get flack for this. Good, but, good, I like flack. <laughs> the, the architecture practice might get relegated to a simple line drawing, right? where you're just coordinating third-party consultants on that drawing. So in other words, somehow the technology gets to the point where all you're doing is specking out products, which actually probably happens right now. Uh, but it'll get to the point where, I mean, that's all it is um, fundamentally for whatever number of reasons. And this is a, this, this, that future is excluding the future of 3D printing, and anything else, or like robotic uh, right. labor, what all that other kind of uh, right? We're deferring that to others, right? Where where yeah. that could be ours? Exactly. I mean, look at um, so you have companies now that are starting to tackle issues within the architecture industry, um, like technology companies. Um, and I think if you look at other disciplines, like lawyers, let's say, right? There are already startups that are trying to eliminate the need for lawyers whether it's consolidating legal advice on an app or all your contracts can be just mined through an application and you can sign it there like in real time with someone uh, that's in front of you. Um, so all it's, it's not crazy to say that the architecture industry will undergo a very similar radical transformation um, where things that we thought were only for us will start to get outsourced to technological solutions for that. Um, I look at, um, you know, I have, I have a matrix built in, built in. We're trying to create this like matrix of startups that are kind of in the building industry. Um, I, I'll probably really be releasing that publicly soon so everyone can kind of get a sense of, you know, these are all the different startups right now that are uh, organized by different, let's say, areas of the industry and how they're tackling it. And I think that would be, it's very eye-opening to me to see how um, how things like, um, what's, a, what's a good example of one? I think even like companies like Floored, which is here in the city, where they do 
kind of uh, either 3D environments for real estate. Um, you know, they've done tool, they've built out tools for visualization and for doing things like um, test fits, um, where you can actually do test fits really rapidly, uh, which are inc- it's incredibly impressive to see. Um, yeah, I, I just think there's just so much there that's going to be kind of um, done. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's an exciting future and very scary if we don't uh, if we don't be careful and we don't watch what we're doing. And I and I think when the AIA starts having summits about entrepreneurism, that is a very good sign that uh, we're we're talking about the right things. And and we talked about a lot of what what we talked about today. I mean, we didn't get into the details of of the different types of technology, but we had a a, um, a panel on technology and we had a panel on globalism and. And so it was it all of these things the profession is starting to become aware of um, architects are always late and so I think when we have conversations like this George I think it opens people's eyes and make them realize that you know time doesn't doesn't slow down and the changes aren't going to stop changing and the people who have the see those opportunities are going to take them and why not why not uh, have the architects you know, explore those opportunities and, and, uh, you know, follow the things that you're most interested in to, to, you know, explore the possibilities of what we've, how we've been educated and the things that we can be doing. And so, uh, it's a very exciting conversation. I, 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 we've, we've been here for, uh, for quite a long time here talking. So I don't, I don't want to, uh, to uh, take up too much of your time. I would love to have you come back uh, and maybe we can get into some more of this stuff. That would be a, a great conversation to get a little deeper into maybe the consequences of uh, both positive and negative of technology in, in the profession. No, that'd be uh, good. It would talk. be a great conversation. So um, if somebody wanted to, for one, if they wanted to get more information about Meetup, uh, how do they do that? Um, so we have a website called uh, built-in.co. Um, they can go there, um, and that will t- take them to the meetup page. But right now, we're localized in, in New York City, uh, but we definitely have uh, dreams and ambitions of spreading elsewhere. So if anybody's interested in, in helping with that, that would be phenomenal. And then if somebody wanted to contact you about something we discussed here or just to thank you for being here today, how, how what's the best way to contact you? Um, best way, I mean, you can look for me on LinkedIn. You can also... Um, you can email me at george at irisvr.com. And you're on Twitter as well? You're active on Twitter? Yes, very active. Yeah. George Valdez on Twitter. And it's uh, V-A-L-D-E-Z. D-E-S. Oh, D-E-S. I'm sorry. D-E-S. D-E-S. You're right. Yep. Of course you're right. right. That's, that's, your so, it's so common. It's, so, it's already like a gut reaction. I already know how to respond. Yeah, yeah. And I knew that it was S. I wrote Z, so I said it properly in the beginning of the whatever. No yeah, with all my secrets. So, George, <laughs> thanks, thanks. This, uh, you know, we've we've spoken before off the air, and uh, every time we talk, it, it, we just keep talking. So, uh, we, I'm sure we could fill up another two hours of uh, of a conversation here. So, we'll definitely have you come back. We'll uh, we'll have another conversation someday. But I, I, before we go, I just I wanted to thank you for your dedication to the profession because you're sharing, you're going out there, you're doing what you're doing, and then you're sharing what you know with others. And that's something that I talk about a lot here on the podcast and in, at, at my blog about taking what you know, learning as much as you can, and then sharing it with everybody else so the profession can all uh, benefit from what we know. 
No, I mean, likewise. I think uh, I came across you. I forgot how I came across you, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the podcast and the blog itself, I think it's, um, you know, lighthouses in the storm, I think that's still brewing overhead. So uh, yeah, I thank you also for inviting me. You're welcome. I, I look forward to having you come back. So thank you for being here today on the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and leave me a review because that's the way you're going to spread the word about what we're doing here. EntreeArchitect.com slash iTunes will get you there. But even more important to me than that review in iTunes is that you share what we're doing here. Tell all of your friends. Share the link, EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 86. Send it by email. Send it by Twitter. Put it on Facebook, EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 86 and tell everybody you know because I appreciate your support for what I'm doing, and I thank you for spreading the word. Complete show notes for this episode and a direct link to download this episode may be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 86. And just a reminder, the Entree Architect Report, that's my free weekly newsletter. When you subscribe, I'll send you a short, easy-to-read email every Friday morning with direct links to both the weekly blog article and each of these weekly podcast episodes so you will never miss one thing. And I also share a weekly resource that will help you build a better business, be more productive, or live a happier life as an, arch as an architect. And I'll share my thoughts in a quick little letter from me to you on a more personal level. I share sort of the behind the scenes of my life as a small firm architect on that newsletter. If you are not already a subscriber, and I know so many of you are, I have about 4,000 of you subscribed. So, but if you're not, I want you to sign up at entrearchitect.com slash newsletter. It's free. And if you are already, if you are already a subscriber, please share that link to entrearchitect.com slash newsletter with a friend and ask them to subscribe as well, because that's the best way for me to keep in touch with you. So quote of the week. I love this one. Very appropriate for sort of the technology and space analogies of virtual reality. The limits of the possible can only be defined by going beyond them into the impossible. That is the author of 2001, A Space Odyssey, Arthur C. Clarke. The limits of the possible can only be defined by going beyond them into the impossible. My name is Mark R. LePage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I appreciate you for being here, and I appreciate you for listening, and I'll see you next week. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well, well buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm 
where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris. Owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.